0: Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, as we have worshiped you and praise you for your love, we now come to your word and we want to receive your truth for our lives. Give us sensitive hearts, soft hearts to hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, normal life wasn't so bad now, was it? There's one thing that this strange season we're in has taught us. I think it's to take less things for granted. What we want to give to go back to the routine, mundane, and ordinary days when we could do things like see one another <laughs> and do just normal things. Some of us thought life was hard then. and We found plenty to complain about. And I'm sure that even when things return to normal, we'll still do the same. But I hope we can do so with an increased gratitude for the blessings in the ordinary. Now, I do not say all that in order to minimize any hard things that you've gone through in your life at all. Life is hard. And perhaps much harder than we in the first world have gotten used to. And when hard times come, they tend to do two things to us. They help us to appreciate what we had as we grieve our losses, but they also tend to make us lose sight of what we still have. And I'm convinced that, that for all believers, no matter how hard life may get, there is still Good. And in the midst of hardships, I believe it becomes that much more crucial that we keep our eyes on Jesus and not lose sight of the blessings and benefits of His gospel. I want you to meet some people today whose suffering was transformed by the gospel. These were Christians who suffered much, suffered hard, and suffered well. But that doesn't mean that it was easy. And they needed encouragement. So imagine their excitement when they received a letter of encouragement from Jesus himself. And today we get to read that letter for ourselves, which I hope will encourage us. So, if you haven't already, if you would take a Bible and turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. It's important that we see the book of Revelation was written to real churches in real history facing real challenges and struggles. At the same time, these churches dealt with things that all churches across the world faced, and really, things that all true churches throughout history have faced. Also, there were seven churches, the symbolic number of perfection, which likely means they symbolically represent all churches, including ours. And in chapter 1, Jesus, in his exalted, glorified state, unveiled himself in a breathtaking vision. Peek back with me to verse 17 in chapter 1. The Apostle John, who's receiving this vision, says this, When I saw him, when I saw Jesus... I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand me on, on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, two weeks ago, last time we were in Revelation, we looked at the first letter, which was written to the church in Ephesus. Today, we're going to look at the second letter, written to the church in Smyrna in verse 8 to 11 of chapter 2. And as we do so, we should be thinking, how might Smyrna's situation resemble our own? Let me tell you a bit about Smyrna first, though. Because I think if you don't understand the context, you won't understand this letter. Smyrna was a city on the western side of Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey. Interestingly, it had once been completely destroyed. But Alexander the Great was the one who ordered it rebuilt. And once it was essentially reborn, it was reborn in splendor. Smyrna was a proud, beautiful city. Known as the Flower or the Crown of Asia. It boasted a number of famous temples, including ones for Zeus and Cybele. They, uh, they had also won the right to build a temple for the Roman Emperor Tiberius. And they showed their enthusiasm for this. They're so excited they got to do this that they ended up building temples for the Empress and the Roman Senate as well. <laughs> Thus, Smyrna became a center of what was what is called the imperial cult that worshipped Caesar. It's a proud city, beautiful city. on the, on the coins from Smyrna was inscribed first of Asia in beauty and size. But for Christians, the city of Smyrna had an ugly, dark side. They faced some pretty intense hostility and persecution from multiple sources. But what's neat is, as Jesus speaks to them in Revelation, he has nothing bad to say to them. No critique, no correction, no criticism. So this is a church that we can learn from. Jesus also tries to to show them that what they saw happening was not the whole picture. He pulls back the curtain a bit on the, the cosmic, heavenly reality all around them. And he so reveals that in Smyrna, things were both worse than and better than they seemed. And I'll bet it's the same for us. We may think that things are not so great for the church nowadays, but they're also not terrible either. Our vision of reality is skewed. In truth, things are likely worse than they seem and also way better than they seem. Look with me. Starting in verse 8. Intentionally echoing chapter 1, Jesus says, And to the angel... Of the church in Smyrna, right? These are the words. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So notice to a city that saw itself as first of cities, Mm -hmm. Jesus claims that he's the true and only first and last of everything. To a city known for essentially coming back to life, the exalted Christ reminds them that he himself, as a person, died and came back to life. And to a church that is persecuted, burdened by persecution in the present, from, from powerful groups of people around them, Jesus reminds them that he alone is the first and the last. He is sovereign over all history. Some of them might even die, but he already died and things turned out okay. But this wasn't just a text message or an email or a Christmas card from a good friend. These were words spoken by the almighty, all-powerful, living and active Lord of all. And they were addressed to them, of all people. No other words could have possibly carried more weight nor meant more to them he still cared about them he was still sovereign he was risen he was with them and he was speaking and this is starting to get to the main point of this passage that i want us to see here christ is speaking to encourage his suffering people and how Christ speaks to encourage his suffering people with his knowledge of their plight. Okay, Christ speaks to encourage his suffering people with his intimate knowledge of their plight. He, Jesus assures them of this. Look at verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue. Of Satan, like He says he knows what they had gone through. He knows what they're going through. When, when, a young, when a child is in distress, why do they call out for their mom or dad? Maybe they climbed up somewhere they can't get down from, or they got scared from a dark room, or, or they hurt themselves falling off their bike. Why call out for their parents? Because they want help, They want care, they want sympathy, or all of the above. But any of this starts by grabbing their parents' attention. The parents need to know what's happening in order to respond accordingly. Jesus was telling the Christians in Smyrna, You don't need to grab my attention. I already know. I've been standing right here all along. I've I've seen you get hurt just the knowledge that he knows and that he is responding or will respond is a great comfort believer when you go through hard times Jesus has first-hand knowledge of them he went through similar and worse in his time on earth and he empathetically with empathy he he walks with us now even in the valley of the shadow of death. Some of you right now, just speaking to the the moment here, some of you are are wrestling through hurt and anger and grief over what has happened to you or to, to people like you, to people of your skin color. Some of you are are staring back at the generations or centuries of hatred, sinful and evil hatred and oppression. And it distresses you. and, and, and you you don't know, I don't know all the answers here. but I do know that Jesus knows. Jesus knows what's happening he knows what's happening he knows what's in your heart what distress was the church in Smyrna facing we list three things out in verse nine Jesus says I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not so first tribulation which here again refers to general afflictions or literally crushing pressure. So the believers in Smyrna were under pressure, pressure to to give up on their fledgling faith in this foreign spiritual teacher who most of the world presumed was dead and gone. Pressure to, to be like everyone else around them, to go with the cultural flow. Pressure to, to look after the best interests of their, their families. Pressure to, to consider the financial ramifications of holding to their faith. Speaking of which, Jesus says he also knows their poverty. Now, early Christians already tended to be from the lower, poorer classes of society. But since believers in Smyrna wouldn't support the temples and hence the economy. They likely also face job losses and boycotts of their work, possibly even looting and destruction of their property. But here we have this remarkable four-word statement from Jesus in parentheses. Did you notice it? It says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. (laughs) Like, I've seen how poor you are, but you're really not poor you're rich like if only you could see the riches that God has lavished on you through me see things were better than they seemed from the outside looking in. Danny Akin says, Materially they may have had little, but spiritually they had everything. People on earth mocked them as paupers, but God praised them as wealthy. So brothers and sisters, if you are ever facing financial difficulties in life, you may be right now, like a lot of people are right now. Don't lose sight of where you are truly rich. Don't lose sight of where you're truly rich. Like To borrow language from other places in Scripture, we are rich in grace, rich in faith, rich in salvation, rich in hope, rich in wisdom and knowledge, rich in God's provision, rich in good works, rich in glory and power, rich in family, rich in eternal wealth, a glorious inheritance, and rich in life if we can keep our hearts set on these things earthly poverty can really lose its sting and nevertheless Jesus acknowledged that he knew that they were suffering economically and financially they were suffering finally he says I know I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan This was the the main source of hostility against them. See, Smyrna had a large Jewish population that really viciously opposed Christians. Under Roman law at this time, all citizens were required to regularly go to a temple to take a pinch of incense, to cast it on the altar, and say something to the effect of Caesar's Lord. However, Jews had been given a special exemption to this law. And they were always nervous that Rome was going to revoke this exemption. Christians, on the other hand, did not receive this privilege. And when Christians, many of whom were Jewish, kept refusing to worship Caesar, the Jews saw them as a clear threat to their own special privileges. And so, likely to deflect attention from themselves, to to protect their own rights, the Jews often ratted out Christians, informing on them, snitching, inciting this legal action against them. But Jesus knew what was going on and he called it slander. I know you're being lied about. And again, Jesus had a different perspective on reality. He said, they call themselves Jews, God's chosen people, but they're not. The fact was, By blood, they were Jews. By appearances, they were Jews. But in God's eyes, as Romans 2 says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. Jesus then went further here and said that they're even a synagogue of Satan. Like they think... They're God's people, but they're actually doing the work of God's enemy, Satan. That's the reality. Now, notice. Jesus was like, I know what they're saying about you. But listen to what I say. We've got to listen to Christ's words over all the cacophony of voices in our world. We will be slandered by people, but those aren't the voices that matter. Don't believe the lie. Don't believe the lie that Christians have to get with the times or get with the program or else. In truth, the real danger is in caving to society's pressure, not in resisting it. On the other hand, like that's a, that's a lie that often comes from the outside. On the other hand, don't believe the lie that comes from the inside that, that Christians shouldn't suffer in this life. Many people will tell you that. Many Christians will tell you that. Jesus warned us though that in this world we will have trouble and tribulation. There will be those who oppose us. There will be those who turn on us. There will be those who try to impoverish us or slander us and in many ways the pressure is mounting for us today. I'm convinced that the day is coming where it will be difficult to hold to your Christian convictions and to hold down a job in the medical, legal, educational, or political realms. That's many of us. Christians may well become targets of boycotts, vandalism, cyber attacks one day. The slander against Christians is already widespread, labeling us as archaic and barbaric, bigoted, brainwashed, dumb, dangerous, anti-this, anti-that, intolerant, and even evil. And even though we in North America might not face physical persecution yet, many believers around our world face intense persecution on a daily basis. Basis, Even during this current pandemic, you know that Christians in Burkina Faso were blamed for bringing the virus into their country. Total slander. But it's there. Let me ask you this. Does Jesus seem to think that this is all terrible stuff? Not really. He knows it's hard stuff this is where, like this place in the letter is where Jesus usually lists out strengths of the churches so it appears tribulation and poverty and, and the slander that they're receiving appear to be strengths of the church in Smyrna remember, this letter doesn't have any criticism or correction in it there's no call to repentance so the church in Smyrna hadn't done anything to deserve these hardships And Daryl Johnson says, and that is precisely the point. Sometimes we are under pressure because we are making careless, wrong, or ungodly choices. But sometimes we are under pressure because we're making wise, right, and godly choices. The disciples in Smyrna were experiencing tribulation because they were living godly lives. And Jesus said, after all, the world will hate you because it hates me. And then he walked the path of suffering first. And so that means the closer that we are to Jesus, the closer we will be to harm's way here on earth. But take harm. Because as we walk the path after him, he already knows and he's already overcome. Remember that these are the words of the first and the last. Who died and came to life. Now, put yourself in the believers from Smyrna's shoes. If you just heard these words I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander you're going through, what would you hope that Jesus would say next? Right? I know all your hardships, and now I'm going to take them away. That might be what we'd hope. That's not what he says. He basically goes, things are going to get worse before they get better. Look at verse 10. It says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. But they were already suffering. So he's saying that they're about to suffer some more. So what does Christ want them to do about it? not be afraid. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. See, Christ wants to instill courage in his people to encourage us. The point? Christ speaks to encourage his suffering people to not be afraid of what could happen. Christ speaks to encourage his people to not be afraid of suffering that could yet happen. Now this can be very apt for us whose suffering for Christ, may be primarily yet to come. Our first natural reaction to hypothetical hardships is to worry, to fear. Some of you have suffered very little in life. And you worry about being able to handle it when it does come. Some of you have suffered a lot in life already. And you're always worried about what's coming next for you. And Christ goes to all of us, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, do not fear what you're about to suffer. And He goes on, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days... You will have tribulation, and we go, "What? Shouldn't that be reason to fear? You think so? But no. After all, God knows it's coming. He knows exactly what will happen. The devil cannot do anything to God's people that God does not permit. And also, the trial He was going to put them through had a limit. Ten days. He says, that's likely not a literal 10 days, but a severe yet short time period. It was going to be tough. This is why Jesus was warning them ahead of time. But God was in control, and it wasn't going to last forever. But, you see how Jesus was even pulling back the veil here? It's like, behold, look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have... Tribulation. Think about it. Was Satan himself going to walk up to the believers in Smyrna, arrest them, chain them up, try them, and throw them into prison? That's not what the believers would have experienced. And they would have heard the Jews slander them. Satan's line of work, by the way. And they would have felt... The local magistrates or the Romans imprison them. If there was a video recording of events, we wouldn't see the devil anywhere. But Jesus says, the devil's going to do it. Again, there's more to reality than we see. And in this case things were worse than they seemed they didn't just have human opponents they had cosmic ones and yet do not fear what you are about to suffer you're not fear what you're about to suffer but how and how were they not supposed to fear how are we Jesus knows that anxiety is our natural reaction, hence the need for this to be a command. And I'd add, hence the need for our courage to be supernatural. Because we can't do this on our own. But in Christ, by his spirit, we can. Almost all the time in scripture where, where God says, do not be afraid, and he says it a lot. Almost all the time, the solution is instead to trust God. Trust God, which makes sense, as all of our worry is rooted in a lack of trust on some level. First Peter 5, 7 tells us to be casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We cast all our care on him. We do this by by praying, throwing our worries at his feet, and then walking away, trusting that he does care for us and trusting that he is in control, that he's got this. By the way, guess what verses come right after that in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 to 10? It says, be sober-minded. got this. Like the devil is indeed active and dangerous but with God, there's still no reason to be anxious. Be firm in your faith. What's the worst that could happen? Well, we could die and point in fact that is precisely how bad things were going to get for some in Smyrna. Actually, this has been the experience for countless Christians in the world. Some estimate there have been over 100 million martyrs in history, over half of which have died in the last century. We may think, well, that's terrible. And Christ goes, is it, though? Verse 10, again, it says... Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. That didn't mean they were getting out. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So, not only does Christ encourage his people to not be afraid of what could happen, Christ speaks to encourage his suffering people to be faithful no matter what happens. No matter what happens. Christ speaks to encourage his suffering people to be faithful no matter what happens. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus forewarning them here that, that some of them were going to die. But he didn't expect these huge, heroic things from them as they approached possible death. All that he asks of them is, no matter what comes, whether slander, imprisonment, or worse, to be faithful. be faithful. Even to the point of death. Which happens to be the exact point that Jesus was faithful to. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what does it mean to remain faithful? It means keeping the faith, to, to not stop believing. It means to, to carry on your walk for God, to, to keep living for him. To keep worshipping him and loving him and loving others like him. Negatively, it means to not compromise on your faith in order to avoid persecution. Or to to not become more fearful or secluded as the days grow darker. We are part of a lampstand. And as long as God has us here, we're to shine his light. What can make this kind of suffering, even death, ever be worth it? Well, how about heavenly riches that you can never lose? How about cosmic glory? How about inestimable honor from God himself? How about the negation of death itself? Like, these are the kind of things that are implied by the crown of life. It says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Recall that Smyrna was known as the crown of Asia. And in Smyrna, actually, it had this beautiful acropolis known as the crown of Smyrna. And Jesus is essentially saying, those aren't true glory. I can give you true glory. And and Smyrna may actually kill you but if they give you death I'll give you life if you believe in Christ as your savior your ultimate future is completely assured no matter how distressing life or death may get now no matter what so hold on to your faith no matter what. Because despite present appearances. Like that could be a theme phrase for Revelation. Despite present appearances. And despite future occurrences, it will be so worth it. So worth it. Like this passage can be described as as sobering in some ways, dire, like things are are worse than they seem. But at the same time, there's this thread of hope throughout it, immovable, resilient hope, because things are also so much better than they seem. Jesus ends this brief letter with another challenge slash promise. Look at it in verse 11. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So, just to sum up so far, and Christ speaks to encourage his suffering people. How? By, by assuring us of his intimate knowledge of our plight. For what purpose? so that we will not fear what could happen, and so that we will be faithful no matter what happens. And finally, why? What's the grounds for all this? Why not fear? Why be faithful? Well, like a a parent responding to a child's pleas for aid, God is going to do something about our suffering. See, Christ speaks to encourage his suffering people, for after suffering comes... Victory. He encourages us, he challenges us, he promises us. After suffering comes victory. We can see this victory in the crown of life. Jesus promises to give the faithful. That's not talking about a king or queen's crown, but a victor's crown. Like what was given to Olympic champions. Today you might think of a gold medal. The value of these rewards is not in and of themselves, it's in what they symbolize. And they seem like the glory of being a champion, and this very much fits the context of Jesus saying, "The one who conquers." In verse eleven, if you conquer or win or overcome or are victorious, this happens to the one. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. See, there's a, a fate that is worse than death. What Jesus calls the second death here eternal death, separation from God forever, a void of life and hope and love. But Jesus' message here is if you conquer, you need have no fear of hell, none! So the one one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The first death may or may not hurt you, but the second death never will. And we can conquer by, by doing what Jesus says to do in this passage. By not fearing and being faithful. But there's more to this. Because this is actually a promise that's given to all believers. As Jesus said back in John 10, we read this today, my sheep Hear my voice, and I know them. The one who has an ear, let him hear. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Speaking of the second death, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So, if you are truly a follower of Christ, one of his sheep, one of his people, you will conquer. Hell will never touch you. And you don't earn this. It's given to you as a gift. See, we can conquer over suffering and the devil and death because Christ conquered them first. Grant Osborne says the major single theme of this letter is that Christ will bring life out of death. Nothing they can suffer would fail to lead to God's vindication and their reward. But did you notice where this theme started? Right at the beginning where Jesus says the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. After suffering comes victory. After death Comes life! Just ask Jesus. Calling himself the the deceased and risen one wasn't just a reference to the once-dead city of Smyrna. It was a promise to people who were facing the real possibility of death soon. But death was not the end. Life is the end you have Christ and that's because though we all deserve to die and go to hell, Christ died for us he died in our place and rose again in our place so now we can spiritually die and rise in him if you have never put your faith and your trust in Christ before, you can today and I hope you will Call out to him today. Confess your sins. Ask for his mercy. And he'll give it to you. And one day he'll give us the final victory. So do you see now how the gospel should really transform our suffering? It changes everything. Like You may suffer. You may even die. But Jesus has been there, done that. It's overrated. He's come back to life. He's now alive forevermore. And now, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. John Piper concludes saying, things are better than they seem. Christ is the first and the last. Christ will have the last word. Christ died and has come to life. Christ knows your pain. You are rich. Even in poverty, even in death, you are rich. You will receive the crown of everlasting pain. No more pain, no more slander, no more shame, no more tears, no more depression, no more frustration and discouragement. Only life and light and joy and God forever. You will not be hurt by the second death. God is not mainly in the business of sparing us from the first death or the pain that leads to it. He is utterly devoted to rescuing us from the second death. Mm-hmm. One of the most famous martyrdoms in history was of an early church father named Polycarp. And Polycarp was the pastor of the church in guess where smyrna it's believed that polycarp was actually discipled by john which means that he was probably a young man sitting with the church in smyrna when the letter of revelation was delivered and read for the very first time decades later as an old man polycarp was arrested quickly put on trial Along the way towards his trial, people kept coming alongside of him and begging him, trying to get him to save himself. Saying, what harm is there to just say Lord Caesar and, and offer a bit of incense? When the proconsul who was trying him saw how old he was, he, he also tried to persuade him to change his mind. Like, it's not worth it. Have respect to your age. Swear by Caesar. Take the oath. I shall release you. Just curse Christ. This was Polycarp's reply. Eighty-six years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He went on, saying, The fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little." He then warned the judge, who was trying him, of of this far worse fire that was coming one day for the wicked. Once all the attempts to get Polycarp to recant had failed, he was sentenced to die. And as he was burned alive, he was praying and, and praising God, saying, I bless you, because you have deemed me worthy of this day and hour. To take my part in the number of the martyrs, in the cup of Christ, for resurrection to eternal life. Do you see where his focus was? That's victorious suffering. Victory after suffering. Even victory through suffering. Things are not as they might seem right now. So are you listening? He or she who hasn't here, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us to hear help us to listen and help us to act. Empower us and encourage us to follow you no matter what the cost, no matter what comes for us. May we honor you above all else in our life. In Jesus' name.